Hello and welcome to QView, QIC's Investor Insights Series. I'm Craig Valenzuela, Managing Director for Global Business Development. In our Super Fund Leaders Series today, I'm pleased to be joined by Michael Weaver. Michael, we've known each other for a long time, um, but also the investment landscape has always known you as the head of private markets at Sun Super. So welcome to QView. Thank you. I was hoping we could start with the Super Fund this morning, the Sun Super Super Fund. Um, this time last year, Sun Super was very proud recipients of the Chant West uh, Super Fund of the Year Award. Um, talk us through some of the big achievements the funds uh, achieved since that point in time. Yeah, well, it's been a um, very interesting year over the last year with starting through the COVID crisis and the reactions through investment markets and how we were dealing with that. And, you know, obviously members, uh, significant concerns around how uh, investment portfolios performed during that time. Um, but we've been fortunate to be successful through that time, continuing to win uh, corporate business. Mm. Uh, so growing over time with the most recent announcement being the Australia Post Super Scheme, which is around $8 billion that's going to join come us back to mergers. Ne yep, yep. <laughs> next year. Um, and, and obviously the other big merger that we'll touch on as well. And so we've seen a lot, of, you sort of mentioned this, we've seen a lot of change across many of the super funds in the industry. But as the head of private markets, from a team point of view, can you talk us through the current team situation for Sun Super in contrast to say how other funds have gone about it? Yeah, so I guess for us, we've always um, had the benefit of having strong cash flow within SunSuper and knowing that we should be a larger fund in a few years' time than we are today. And that's been beneficial. We've been able to hire uh, good people that have um, great opportunities to invest money today, but also looking to invest more money into the future. So have been quite focused on getting diversity of team through the sort of backgrounds that people have had. Uh, so in the private markets area I look after. It includes infrastructure, real estate, private equity and private debt, uh, hedge funds area as well. So we've got people with a mix of backgrounds. They might have worked in funds management in one of those streams, some from investment banking, consulting and, and other lines of work. So it's really quite beneficial to have that, that mix of people. Team now is uh, 18 people in, in the team that I look after out of our overall investment team of about 45. And it's been a pretty stable team, particularly at the, at the sort of top end of the hierarchy as well. We've been very fortunate that the people in the team that we've hired in have been very stable and uh, been able to grow in their careers along with some super growing, which yeah. is great. And very flexible uh, as well in terms of locations. Um, it'd be also very interesting to understand the decision-making process, like where decisions start and stop for you and your team um, from a private markets point of view. Um, how do you describe the evolution of the decision-making process for the private markets team? Yeah, so I guess um, as we've looked after the portfolio for quite a while, it has really evolved in that um, we used to have a structure where um, as a CIO, David Hartley um, had different teams looking after different portfolios and we'd have everything approved through him as the CIO. Um, we've now, um, before he left, we changed it to have uh, a more team structure in what we call an investment recommendation committee where anything that's of size goes up to that committee. At present that is still in place and so larger investments go to that committee and the senior members of the investment team uh, make, make decisions at that level. But everything 100 million or less actually gets delegated to me and the team to decide whether we invest in a new investment, a new um, a new co-investment that might come along um, and managers that we've already got money with, we can add uh, money to them. And then there's, there's ranges in between 
uh, or above the 100 million where different decisions get delegated to different members of the team um, and, and other teams within us. So. so if you're doing a very large allocation, mm. um, because now you know, $100 million is quite a small allocation yep. given the size of the fund, um, so let's say it's a billion dollar allocation. How would that work from that decision making point of view? Yeah, so that'd be delegated to Ian and senior members of the team um, to be making a decision at what we call the investment recommendation committee. Ones that are larger than that or have would what might reach certain risk limits would get elevated to the investment committee of right. SunSuper, which is a part of the SunSuper board, yep. so a subcommittee of the board. Yeah. Yep, excellent. Um, so what have been some of the challenges for you as the leader of that team with that decision-making process? Yeah, I think um, it's up to each of us to have the decision-making process, I think, um, and deal with it as we best um, see fit. I think. The, the ability to bring people along the journey, I think, is really important. So if we are thinking of a new investment, whether it be um, 100 million or a billion dollars, then making sure people who are going to be the relevant decision makers on those, making sure they're informed along the way. It's not, uh, here's something and we need a decision tomorrow. There's a very long path of, uh, okay, this is the due diligence we're doing. This is the partner that we're with. This is the potential investment. And then going through the different steps of that process. And because the team has been together and working strongly together for quite some time, uh, that's uh, quite an efficient process. It doesn't mean there's always a lot of work in there, but it's efficient from a process perspective in that people know how they need to approach those issues. Okay. I think the other sort of interesting decision you made recently from my point of view was the ICG committee you formed and that you now chair. Um, can you give us some ideas of the inspiration for that? Because it does seem a little unique. Hmm. Well, um, I think, well, I guess in terms of inspiration, Michael Trail, who's the chair of our investment committee at, at SunSuper, it was actually his idea to say that, well, thinking about, you know, the sort of networks and knowledge that different people have, so in particular, um, Michael, but also Andrew Fraser, who's the chair of the board, and saying, getting that group of people around our, um, a table with a few of us. And so I, th I think just having different ideas and then we'll, we'll have different managers or different um, sort of market practitioners come and talk to us about different ideas. Where is the evolution of infrastructure going? What are different ideas that we need to be thinking about, both for existing assets that we have, so thinking about some of those asset management issues such as ESG, such as work health and safety and the like, um, but then also where is the market evolving to? So I think it's, um, you know, very helpful for the team to think a little differently and and pause in a in a time where you can often be, you know, people spend a lot of time looking at new investments and, and thinking about those, diligencing those, but yeah, a good chance to think a little bit differently. And ICG stands for Infrastructure Consulting, Consulting Group. Group. Yes, exactly. That's right. um, and so uh, the role that it now is starting to play in the fund now that you've had a few meetings, are you, are you seeing some rubber hitting the road? Yeah, in terms of, so, you know, if, if we think about different ideas that come out of that and then we say, okay, we, we should get a couple of people in the team to do a paper on this and get different ideas from different managers and say, okay, how, how should we think about that? Um, bouncing different ideas on, you know, what are, so earlier this week, it's well, what are market expectations in relation to airports, um, recovery of airports over time? And there's differing views and thinking through, well, yeah, how, how should we uh, approach that for different investments that we have? Um, but then also, well, what are expected returns likely to be in different asset classes and, you know, bond rates have changed market perspective 
perceptions quite a lot. Mm. Um, they were falling for a long time. They've been uh, gone from sort of bad to worse in terms of expected returns over the last, you know, post-COVID. Yep. And so thinking through, well, what implications does that have for infrastructure returns, which have also been reducing, but then, you know, your expectations is what happens if bond rates change over time is, is um, yeah, a great source of debate in infrastructure as it is for other asset classes. Um, let's change gears a little bit. So Brian Parker's April 2021 uh, strategy update, he notes, I'm just going to quote this, SunSuper continues to hold a substantial allocation to alternative asset classes, particularly the key unlisted asset classes of property, infrastructure, private equity and private credit. So congratulations on, mm. on, on getting the, uh, the larger allocations there. What do you see as the reason why that overweight position has been you know, approved by the by the allocation committee? Yeah, I guess from the perspective of um, us as a fund, we because we have good growth, we have strong member contributions coming in, and then we um, have been fortunate to have other uh, large funds sort of choose us to invest their money as well. That gives us the ability to access an illiquidity premium. Uh, or I should say potentially access an illiquidity premium. Illiquidity premiums don't really exist unless you can act, capture them properly uh, because in listed markets, it is often challenging to get outsized returns and to generate alpha from listed markets. We do believe there is the ability to do that, but it is challenging. Um, in unlisted markets, it's challenging as well. And so picking the right partners uh, in whether it be in infrastructure or in other asset classes is really important and making sure that we make good investment decisions. So there's, there's a belief from um, the board and investment committee and then from the allocation um, sort of committee, if you like, within the team. So Ian, Andrew, um, Greg and myself, it's thinking through how do we allocate money, that's probably the, one of the better opportunities to, to be allocating money to get a better expected return over time. But the tenor from those programs, um, do you look at it as being a long-term a long buy and hold sort of illiquidity premium capturing there? Yeah, so each different asset class will have a different view on how long each investment will be and then you'll take a perspective of, well, where are we accessing the money from? So where's the opportunity cost? Are we taking money out of equities? Are we taking out of fixed income? Are we taking out of a combination of both? Um, because that's a, a clear, liquid, um, costless exercise to invest in those assets. Um, and taking money out of there, different investors will have different views on how, what they're taking out in different areas. Um, but yeah, that's how we think about it and say, well, what, what expected return are we getting and is that sufficient over the medium to long term yep. generally? So infrastructure and property assets, they might normally be 10 plus years that we yep. will be thinking about it. But that doesn't mean that if someone comes along with an offer that we can't refuse, that we don't sell an asset, we don't uh, fall in love with assets. Um, assets are there to generate returns for our members. And if someone comes along that um, sees value that they can capture, that we are not convinced that we can capture, um, for whatever reason that may be, there might be synergies um, or they might just have a lower cost of capital that they say we're willing to pay X for an asset. And we say, well, if you, you pay X for this asset, then we'll go and use that money to do something else and generate a better return from our perspective. And ME Bank might be an example of that recently. Well, it was a very small exposure for us and we, we were, um, you know, we were not one of the major investors in that. So it made sense for us to sell out of that yep. um, along with the rest of the 
the uh, funds or investors. I was watching one of your old YouTube videos last night and from 2017. Fun life for you. <laughs> and, but it was interesting because back then you talked about the, or how I took it was the safety net from an allocation point of view that your younger demographic allowed you to have. And mm. in your answer before, you sort of continued to note that as a strong factor in your ability to go overweight illiquid assets uh, alongside now the growth and the mergers. So still a big component to how you think? Yeah, definitely we um, have that as an advantage and I would say our average member um, over time is, um, like most of us, getting, getting older. It's just one of the nat natures of superannuation in general and the cohort that we have. Um, but the size of assets is also growing, so that gives an advantage in that, yep. in that area. Um, and so when you look at those allocations, how much is peer analysis part of your decision making as well? Yeah, so that's definitely a factor in the strategic asset allocation framework, thinking about, um, you know, our members uh, looking at us against other funds. It's the nature of the superannuation system in Australia, for better or for worse. And so we do think about that. It's, so I'd say it's an input, but not a guideline or, or a hard rule around that. I think we do have, you know, four different sort of pillars in that private markets mm. area, um, and we believe that it makes sense to have the ability to access different pools of capital in each of those because they have different re risk return drivers. There'll be different times in the market where we can take advantage in different areas that they'll just be slightly better um, risk adjusted returns in one area as opposed to others. Mm. Okay. And one of the questions I had was this increasing debate recently of TPA versus SAA. Do you have a view on this? Because it is now part of the the local industry's vernacular? Mm, yeah, not, not hugely. I, I guess from our perspective, when we think about um, an SAA approach for us, we think it's, it's makes, it can make sense theoretically to, to have that sort of to total portfolio approach, mm. um, but it's, it's pretty hard for people to implement it well. So I think how we like to think about it is having good interaction between the different pillars and making sure that the teams really understand what's going on because from a strategy perspective it can be quite challenging to um, try and get the same sort of exposures people can access in private equity for example in some infrastructure assets for example. But you'd also argue that you said before that if opportunities come your way you'll take advantage of it which is part of the TPA model so it's not like you're ignoring some of the benefits. Yeah that's right and I think um, we need to be conscious that yeah, different people's interpretation and what um, yeah, may be understood is, can be quite different. So for us, as long as we can be opportunistic in each area, then we feel that we capture the benefits of the TPA thinking, um, as well as having guidelines around how, do you, how we measure success in different areas, because that's one of the challenges if it's... Um, yeah, if there's sort of unconscious biases within different people making decisions. Michael Weaver, thank you for your comments today. All right. Thank you, Craig.